So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. We're doing a few talks soon, aren't we? Yes, if you are in the city of London, don't worry, other cities in the UK, we will be coming to you, and other cities in the world. If you want us to speak at your event, or you want us to come and talk to your company, or you want to meet us or whatever, then um, always DM us with any sort of opportunities. We are... We have passports and we will travel. Yeah, drop us a message on Instagram at rebelscrate or drop us an email to connect at rebelscrate.com. Yes, it looks like we're going to be coming to LA next year. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. Um, And we've got some other opportunities coming up later on this year in the uh, rest of the UK. But if you are London-based and you are free on Sunday the... 10th of November, uh, then head down to Boobs and Balance, which is an event that I'm going to be on the panel for. You're not around, are you? No, I'm not. But I'm going to be on the panel for this event in London, in Holborn, and we'll be posting up a link to get tickets on our Instagram, which is at Rebels Create. And we've got a second talk coming up on November the 13th. Hopefully that's not a Friday. Um, with Alex Manzi. I think it's a Wednesday. Why do you hope it's not a Friday? It's Friday the 13th. Ah, okay. And what's that one about? Well, Adam, we will be talking about the creative journey, finding your niche and getting work as a creative and I'm sure a lot of other stuff and we'll open it up to Q&A. And as always, we will stay until every question is answered and we've met every single one of you guys. If you've got a question, come down to that as well because we'll answer it for you. You betcha. Let's talk about... uh, This week's episode. Yeah. In this episode, we interviewed Dan Murray Serta. Yeah, Dan's a bit of a, I suppose a serial entrepreneur would be the... Yeah, the way you he's describe it, done you? lots of things and he's failed a lot, but I think he's learned a lot from those failures. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we we tracked the entire history of the various companies that that Dan's opened, and it's you can see how he's got to where he is now through everything, every business. Even though the businesses are completely different, they're all kind of still yeah. linked. Yeah, everything leads to the next, and no matter when where he's like failed or won he's learned from those failures and he's taken that forward and learned so much from it and taken those to his next thing. And I think what he's on currently is going to be really successful. Yeah, I don't see how he can fail really. It just feels like it's the right time for the product he's launching and yeah, with it, with everything that he's learned so far. And I think it, it goes to show we're always talking about just start, whatever it is. And like on our iTunes reviews, thanks everyone who's been leaving us reviews on iTunes. You are the best. Like literally you are the best. There's some written, some lovely reviews yeah. on there. A lot of people have said in those reviews, like this podcast gave me the courage to start my thing. And we always talk about actually starting and all of these like harebrained ideas that Dan's had, especially like the first one that we talk yeah. about, the playing cards, he's had these these weird ideas, but he's had the courage to actually start them. And through starting them, even though they're not what he's ended up doing for the rest of his life, they are still the building blocks on which he's built everything else. So it just goes back to the importance of if you, if there's something that you 
that you want to try, just fucking do it because you don't know where it's going to lead you. It might, if you want to start something because you think it's going to lead you to X, it'll probably lead you to Y. Where you end up is probably not where you are imagining you're going to end up. Like when we first started painting, we never imagined that we'd open essentially an advertising agency where we start creating billboards and out of home experiences. We never thought we'd be doing a podcast, but each we couldn't do we can open the podcast without nine years of work behind us yeah yeah everything builds on from what you've done before and you'll get so much from this episode it's so interesting and there's some amazing anecdotes in there dan murray Serta is an entrepreneur a speaker and a podcaster and actually i wanted to uh, plug his podcast because we didn't get yeah. a chance to talk about it in the episode um because we had limited time but dan's actually the host of a really successful podcast called secret leaders um which is a amazing podcast where he interviews basically leaders of and some huge companies that you definitely will have heard of and he also put out um, and i refer everyone who asks us about podcasting i refer them to there's an article he put out on linkedin um, which is really interesting that talks about how he launched his podcast which is very different to how we did um, but he also talks talks about how much money he's made um, from his podcast which i think was eight thousand for like made nothing on series one because it was it was just kind of a trial yeah he made eight thousand pounds on series two and then he made twelve thousand pounds on series three so like 20k for three seasons of podcasts pretty good yeah. um and that, i think that was just off the back of ads um so that's pretty cool so definitely check that podcast out dan's also the founder of heights which is a brain health subscription service which you can sign up to the newsletter now um but his product actually launches in 2020 and i think whilst the the product market for things for your body mm-hmm. is quite oversaturated there's not really anything that focuses on like food for your brain which is the yeah. the path that dan's going down which could be which looks like it's going to be really interesting and so as we described earlier dan talks us through his massive roller coaster ride of ups and downs and successes and failures in business and it's a really interesting lesson this episode we talk about success failure and helping others do loads of shit for other people all the time without question and the one time you might have a favour to ask no one will even think about saying no hi dan Hi, mate. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So one thing that strikes me about you is you're um, really open about your failures, which is wicked. Um, can we talk about the playing cards? Oh, yeah. So that was your first foray into your having your own business. Yeah, the playing cards is a great one. Um, good, you really have done your research. That's a, this is a specifically absurd one. <laughs> so, um, such a great story, though. I love it. It is a good one. Uh, so, one of the many attempts to be an entrepreneur, I mean, this is a great example of someone who's just not a natural entrepreneur and but massively open minded. Um, we, so me and my business partner had this insight so I'd, I'd been working in student advertising for a while um, and we had this insight which was bang on the money which is that at this point I've no idea if they still do but yeah. students play drinking games a lot I all over the country it's a pretty safe bet yeah I think it's still a safe bet but you know Although maybe they're just playing are, Tamagotchi I think students are <laughs> drinking less now though yeah true um, I think the stats no, are, totally right. yeah. are that students are drinking less than, than when we were coming up completely but um, even though that's true, I do question... So drinking games is great for binge drinking. Binge drinking is a British thing, and drinking less means you might binge drink less. 
But usually people binge drink anyway because there's people of the opinion of like, if I'm going to get drunk, I might as well, well get drunk. Whereas I think the stats show it's less regularity. So it's less, less like I'm going for a beer in the week. It's like, well, no, I'll just go water all week and then I'll go out for one right. big night. So drinking games in theory should still be popular, right, kids? Anyway, <laughs> um, so we had this idea. This is when QR codes were coming out. So, you know, early to the game, Snapchat. Yeah. Um, and So this was like 2009-ish. Yeah, well, I'm actually, you know what? Uh, I'm really awful with years. I always admire people who are good with years. Where does that come from? When people are like, oh, you know, 2004. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like if you can easily relate it to something, whereas I feel like with David, there's a certain year that crops up over and over again to make himself sound clever. Makes sense. So like, oh yeah, that happened in 95. Yeah. But as a, as a, as <laughs> it's as actually 2008. 2008. But <laughs> a lot of shit happened to me in 2008. Yeah, fair. And a lot of shit happened to a lot of people in 2008, realistically, <laughs> it did, right? It did, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, you know what? You're right. It was about 2009, 2010. That makes sense. Um, so... QR codes had sort of just come out. Mm -hmm. They were big in China. They weren't big in the UK. They were going to be big in the UK. And they were quite simple technology, like super simple. And so we had this idea. I had lots of advertising clients anyway from the student marketing game. I spoke to my boss um, who ended up becoming my business partner in another venture because he was like, let's see how you run with this. And I was like, basically, I have this idea. I want to do this. Um, this is how I want to do it. I'll do it in my spare time. Won't interfere with my work. Don't worry about it. So it was quite, a, it was quite nice of him to let me do it. Um, however, um, the, and, 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 and the snag here was that they had an office in, in Borough Market. Um, so they were very nice because they were like, big warehouse space, you can keep stuff here, you know, you're going to need it, it's, it's all good, as long as you're managing all your other campaigns. Fine, no problem. Uh, so the idea was you put a QR code on um, the back of different playing cards and every different playing card would essentially have different advertisers on it. So we mostly targeted drinks advertisers. So people like Bacardi. Um, Bacardi was like the main client on there. We also had Just Eat. We had Olympus. We had like loads of different brands, that the typical ones you see in freshers and stuff, right? Yeah. But the idea was every single card, if you scanned it with your phone, which back then was like a Sony Ericsson, like brick. Um, but if you scanned it, it would come up with a different deal every week if you wanted to. So just confirm and this is on the back of the card, not where it says the hearts, queens, etc. Correct. Yeah. I'm so, already seeing a problem with this. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it was actually, it was, it was better to do it that way because people, if they're playing, you know, they'd have their cards facing well, them. I'm just, because, but then if I've played it enough times, I suddenly know what the ace looks like based on the QR code on the back. What, you oh, have he's the, counting cards. Of you this have is the, very the, the recognition to notice different QR codes. Have you seen a QR well, like, code to think to that you is, could do that? Well, the, the odds at the top left, like, of How being many like drunk students do you know that are going to be able to do I'm that? I'm very techy. He, he would well, have gamed I it. I would have He would it. have gamed <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, we've learned more about you than me. <laughs> Um, so the idea was, yeah, the QR code went on the back and um, all a student had to do was scan it. And the main the main value was that the drinks, like, so Bacardi would have something like you can get a Jack Daniels and Coke for one pound that week. And the next week you could get a rum and Coke for a pound and it would change every week. And so we're like, brilliant, we're going to get a distribution deal with Weatherspoons. So went to Weatherspoons and look, we were like, yep, they absolutely, like, this would be really cool. Yes, we won't pay for them, but we'll distribute them out. Like when people get drinks, we'll give them that. And, you know, we gave the clients a little like crude back end, basically, where they could just upload a different deal every week. It was yeah. crappy, but it was easy and Did very job, simple. Yeah. Did the job. So... Freshers runs around um, and, you know, I'm sure like for anyone that's uh, read anything about startups, there's this principle called MVP. 
um, which means minimum viable product, which means that you you start small and you scale up and you see what happens. But like we didn't really bother learning what that meant. So we just thought it meant million. So we <laughs> made a million packs of playing cards in Whoa. China, which is 54 million individual pieces of cards because it's 52 million and two fucking jokers, which, you know, not a problem until there's two million of them. Yeah. Um, so these cards... Um, basically are getting produced over the summer and we've got this deal with Weatherspoons and um, we've got these clients who have basically paid decent advertising money. So actually we, we, we'd had this really good product that I was like, this is actually going super well. I'm delighted. I can't wait for freshers to roll around. These will get rolled out in all the different Weatherspoons. Students will be playing all over the country and we'll see what happens. The reality is um, like, both me and my business partner completely forgot about distributing the cards. Every single other part of the whole business was mapped out, including how much money we were going to make the little geniuses that we were. <laughs> um, but one day, seven lorries turned up to Borough Market, um, full of these 54 million individual pieces of cards. So that is like the amount of pallets, like I say, seven entire lorries worth of cards, and they just dumped them in Borough Market because they're like, I don't give a fuck about your excuse, mate. Yeah. This is the address I've been given. Yep. It was so ridiculous. Now, this is a random flashback to a unique random skill I acquired as a 13-year-old. Um, my dad's now passed away, so I can't, they can't get sued for this. But as a 13-year-old, <laughs> I was working in his factory, um, in his warehouse, and um, which was in Tottenham. And uh, he used to run a fashion manufacturing business. And so I learned how to drive a forklift truck, which is actually super technical. It's a very niche skill to have because there's yeah. sort of two wheels. One goes round, one goes forward. So you kind of learn, it's a bit like rubbing your, like, rubbing yeah. your tummy and patting your head at the same time. That's what driving a forklift truck's like. So I actually acquired and kept the knowledge of how to do that. So this day when these pallets all turn up, the only way to get them off is with a forklift truck. Yeah. And everyone in Borough Market going fucking mental at me, obviously, because... They should. Yep. And there's only so much we can fit in our warehouse space. Fortunately, everyone else around them was like desperate to get these things off the road, obviously, because <laughs> we started to cause a massive traffic jam. So people lent me their forklift trucks and they were helping with their forklift trucks and like sticking it in their different warehouses and stuff. And we basically had to pay a fortune to get... Uh, like last minute distribution of these pallets going around the country to all these different weather spoons one by one. It was a really big lesson in not to be a moron, to plan things out. And, you know, the reality of the campaign was um, we ended up obviously losing all the money that was going to be in the slightest bit profit. And what was really interesting, I guess I learned, is that um, alcohol brands really had very little perception of, you know, digital like detail. They don't right. really give a fuck. The reality is how many people actually in a Weatherspoons, I mean, everyone took the cards. People really love the cards. I've still got a bunch at home. Um, but in general, seven million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got 995,000. Um, but the, the reality is like people really liked them and people took them and played with them. But I mean, how many people genuinely are going to get their phone out of students, you know, and like do the QR code? Like, not that many. Yeah, I think even now QR codes still confuse to people. Totally, totally. Yeah, but around that same time, it was our second ever print of business cards and we were working at a tech conference doing some painting mm. and we got QR codes printed onto the back of our business cards because we thought... Did do that. Yeah, because we thought that would be like, everyone would see this and be like, that's amazing. Yep, that Get was the those cards. And then we even hand drew a QR code as well and yeah, painted onto a wall. 
and um, but I don't it, know how many people really scanned it. No, <laughs> this, this is the thing. People don't care as much as we think they do with QR codes. I think they will eventually catch on. I mean, they did well with Snapchat, but yeah. I mean, it's a very different use case, right? They're massive in Asia. Like everything on WeChat's done on on QR codes. Oh. Um, but this is really weird. If you go to Asia, that's that's how they do everything, um, which I was like. It's surprised by. Um, but yeah, anyway, the reality is the clients um, didn't really give a fuck, frankly. As in, they didn't, they didn't really complain. They thought it was quite cool. We got some PR coverage um, about having done something innovative. And then the brands were kind of into the fact that they'd done something innovative in yeah. partnership. But in reality, it was a horrifically bad um, example of terrible entrepreneurship. And my behavior around it was, I'm just not going to do physical products ever again. Which, of course, is not true. So literally, my new company is a physical product. But it's taken, I mean, I had PTSD, right? So it's taken me, <laughs> you know, if that was 2010, like you say, and we think that it's almost 2020, and my company's launching, the physical product's launching to the public in 2020, it took me 10 years of PTSD to go back to doing anything physical because it's just terrifying, the idea of doing that. I think the important thing is the fact you actually did it because you made that mistake then and you've learned from it. And then now when you launch your... Yeah. Now when you launch this product, yeah. it won't do the same next do, time. Do you know what's really embarrassing is um, is I really am the type of person that has to learn things the hard way. I learn so fast from doing. Yeah. And that's my approach. And that's why I fail a lot. Because um, I'm actually really open to trying and failing and learning. It's so much cheaper and more practical to think things through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, my business partner, Joel's is super, he's a very strategic person, right? Whereas I'm, I'm not. I just think about doing and I think about how things will feel and look and what customers will say and how it will make them feel. And that, that's kind of just where my mind goes. And so I like to just put stuff out in the real world, get real world feedback and see how it goes. But obviously the negative is sometimes these absurd situations can happen. Yeah. Where do you think that's confidence has come from because it's like a lot of people would be too scared to go and do it to start with but I feel like yeah you've just gone and done it I I was definitely too scared at the beginning I was really scared um so the I you know what I I always say this to people as well a lot of people ask me for uh tips or you know how to be an entrepreneur like all these things and like the first question I ask them is can I ask about do you mind if I ask like about your life circumstances because if I think about me when I started so I was I think 25, 26, like roughly around that age. And, you know, this example, you know, I was still full-time employed, right? I got permission from my boss to do this. It was my first real foray into entrepreneurship. And I was too scared to leave because I, I needed a safety net um, of, of, of salary to do it. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have done, I absolutely wouldn't have done it if he'd have said no. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole thing around permission and safety nets totally. And then, you know, when people ask me this stuff, I always just say, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? What stage of your life are you in? Do you have a mortgage? These things are really important to me because my next business after that, actually very lucky, we did this daily deal site and we got really, really, really lucky. Timing was perfect. We did it because we were like, this Groupon's taking off. All these companies yeah. are taking off. It doesn't seem very hard. You don't really need much physical product. There's this like Ukrainian software solution that was completely third party. Their deal was they took like 25% of all of your um, profit, basically. and But they gave you all the platform. So you literally, your job as an entrepreneur and I say that loosely, was to call up people and ask if they wanted to put a deal on and then just design a template and stick it on and market it. So you're talking about one of the easiest get rich 
quick schemes ever. Um, so those those clients would then pay you a percentage for every single person that booked. Yeah. So basically, you got paid. Um, it depends. I mean, totally depended on the deal. But generally speaking, if you think of, so, the best deal we had, we had a launch deal, and Joel was still at PwC at the time of doing this. So we were literally working PwC's London Bridge office, like setting up <laughs> this company with it going viral. It was absolutely hilarious. Um, but we set up this deal with Hungry House, yeah. if you know them. So. Again, this was like students, they love takeaways, student market's easy. I've done so much stuff in the student market. Like loads of people will give me free advertising space for this if I just ask them, because I've given loads of people free space before. So, and like generally my, my experience in life is do loads of shit for other people all the time without question. And the one time you might have a favor to ask, no one will even think about saying no. And you use those things really lightly. Don't ask for favors all the time. Don't be that person, but here or there, you know, just like the universe, right? That's fair. So this was the one time that I actually asked. And so a bunch of people gave us some free ad space. Um, so we paid nothing on advertising. Anyway, we did this deal that was a free £5 takeaway for every everyone that, re- that redeemed to Hungry House. We got paid £1.50 every time someone actually ordered a takeaway. Now, Hungry House basically assumed that only a handful of people would actually redeem. But these are students. There's £5 for a takeaway. You know, realistically, everyone was going to do it. Yeah, yeah, You know, there's, I mean, there are a few places, I mean, I was at Nottingham when I went to uni, so you could get a takeaway for five quid, but it was just a better, like, better value. Anyway, so the point is, we did like 100,000 of these in about three days because it went on UK hot deals like super fast. It got picked up by everywhere. It went completely viral. We were like raking in cash um, for nothing. As in, we had just two of us. It was just an email receipt. Do you know what I mean? There's literally no physical product. It was completely absurd. And we didn't really understand how how amazing this was, right? There was no work to do. Like other people that do daily deal sites, it's like, okay, I've got a product. I need to sort out the drop shipping. I need to do this, I need to do that. I spoke to, for example, a friend of mine's like the founder of Eve Mattresses. And the way that they started was was with a, a mattress deal on, on Groupon originally. They had yeah. the most successful global deal ever on Groupon. That's literally how they started or how he got into the mattress industry. But he still had to deliver mattresses to people. Yeah. There's like a proper hardcore thing to do. I you'd, just, you'd learn your lesson with yeah, totally. <laughs> a million cards. Basically, we were sending emails with a, with a voucher. It was amazing. So after that business, we didn't run that for very long. So we literally learned very quickly that people didn't care. So so you, you did 100,000 um, of those in, in like in a the week. First, in the first week. Yeah. And, that, and you're getting 150. Exactly. £1.50. Exactly. And there's you're no You're just watching no these email receipts just yep. go ding, ding, ding. Yep. No overheads. This company in the Ukraine is taking 25% of all of our commission. That was it. We didn't have to have any staff anyway. So, and, and not all the deals were that successful, obviously. I mean, it was the most successful deal that we did. But the point is at the end of that company, so it went over about six months and we were just not enjoying it because there's no customer relationship. There's no brand. Everything's crap, basically. And all the people you're working with are crap and no one cares about the customer. So what you learn really quickly is it's just a bunch of people in the middle of England somewhere that have a warehouse with oversold stock that they can't really be bothered to make better. Yeah. Some of it's faulty, some of it's not. They don't care. They send a crap product to budget customers that are paying very little for something because they think they're getting a deal. And actually, it turns out they're not that happy. So you end up having like all these customer service complaints. You're like, actually, hold on a second. 
this is a crap thing to be doing with our lives. We're not very happy. We hate it. We're apologising the whole time. We're both very polite people. You know, we don't want to have unhappy customers. So, so if, if someone does get faulty stock, are they then complaining to you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. And that's the thing. You all like the shop windows. So mm. you, you can pass it on, but they don't do anything. So you have to buy another one from them and send it back. So it ends up being a bit of a nightmare. The point being, this is a very long way of, of telling you this this point, but... After that business, we, we got to a point where after six months, we were like, we can take the money and run and just close this thing down. Or we can spend, you know, money and time trying to build it into something which seems quite risky at this point, because actually, you know, this feels like a bit of a heyday and it doesn't feel yeah. like these things are going to go on. And we were very, one thing I'm quite good at, I guess, is like calling time on something when we should. So anyway... Um, we shut that down. We sent an email, actually. We said we're going to send an email to everyone. At this point, we had like three or 300 odd thousand people in our database. So we're like, we're going to send this in uh, email to everyone that we're going to shut down. And if anyone complains, we will we'll reconsider. Anyway, not a single complaint. No one gave wow. a fuck. So it's a great example of just a shit brand, right? It's just like, no one cares about these brands. So took the money, ran, very lucky because we bought ourselves apartments, right? Like with mortgages, but like we were able to actually take that first step which is amazing and is a real life-changing opportunity. From that point on, we've always had mortgages. So we've had this sort of responsibility to understand that anything we're doing, we're responsible for, um, you know, it's it's the same as rent, except that, you know, previously when I didn't have rent, I was able to move back in with my mum. And this time, you know, with no mortgage, it's a bit more complicated. So the reason I'm saying all of this is because this idea of um, where does that risk come from or yeah. that sort of appetite or entrepreneurship um, vibe, I think it's incredibly irresponsible and super misplaced in society that there are people like the Gary V's and everyone else. It's super, I mean, I think the guy's brilliant when it comes down yeah, to do. it. And yeah. so, so are all of these guys. I think they're really inspiring. I think they put a really great message into the world. I know that he's an unbelievably annoying person, but he owns that as well, which I massively respect. The problem is it's te- it does tempt a lot of people who don't have the right setup yeah. financially to do these things, who aren't um, prepared for the emotional roller coaster that's ahead of them, yeah. who aren't actually practical enough to absorb a failure, the financial cost of a failure if things go wrong as well. So, you know, when things went, like I did move back in with my mum, like in between I did something, it went badly. I couldn't afford my rent. I moved back in with my mum. That's called a safety net. That's called being incredibly fortunate. Yeah. Um, that is you know, there are so many interesting articles on the pros and cons of, you know, whether you're middle class, lower class or upper class doing entrepreneurship and how it affects you. You know, there's all these amazing examples about how some of the most successful men and women in history are like, you know, completely from poverty because they've got so much to prove. I get it. But also that story inspires people to be the cause of their own ruin. And if you've got family that you need to support, and people around you that rely on you. I just don't think entrepreneurship is a good career choice. And I think it's so glamorized um, when it just doesn't need to be. Like realistically, if you're trying to earn money, it's a shit career choice. For starters, <laughs> let's just start there. It's a crap career choice. Most entrepreneurs do really badly out of being an entrepreneur. Like at the end of the day, like my last company, I was like the worst paid employee at my company. So was Joel for the whole five-year period. It's just, and, and actually it was interesting, like that was like a psych, that was psychologically like deeply embedded in us, right? For some reason we felt like that had to be the case until 
these VCs came in and they were sort of like, why are you doing that? And we're like, we feel like it's the right thing. They're like, why? That's not what people do. And like, actually, most of my friends do that. You know, we need to make ends meet. We need to hire another person. I'd rather the company was successful so I can bump my salary up by 30 grand or I can pay a 30 grand salary. It seems like a super easy decision for me. I know what will make me happier and feel more successful. So, you know, to me, I think this where does the risk taking or, you know, the, the confidence factor come from? I, I think that there's massively, I think people are not brave enough and I certainly am comfortable enough to say that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. Like my parent, my, my dad actually started like grew up poor, um, and was the self-made person, but he did one company his whole life. He started it at 16. He died at 67. That's mental, right? As in, I fucking rather die early than do one company all my life personally. But, you know, that's a life choice. 51 years in the same thing. Um, But that was like, because his life's purpose was to provide for a family. And so he like like, mastered one skill and learned that one skill and grew that one skill, right? But that means that I was grown up middle class. When you are grown, when you grow up middle class, suddenly you've got way more opportunities at your feet. And this idea of like, well, you know, I knew that I wanted, I knew I didn't want to work for my dad, for example. I didn't want to go into family business or do anything like silver spoony. I wanted to make my own way. That's why I went into advertising. It was something that no one else in my family had ever done before. But at the same time, um, when I like went and tried to find my own path, I can't pretend like I don't know that if everything had gone to shit, my, I, had a, I had a home to go back to. For some reason, you know, people would gravitate towards different charities and causes and stuff. I'm obsessed with like homelessness. Like I every single day take out cash from the ATM, get a note, turn it into coins, and I'll always give like a pound to every single homeless person I see on the way home. The other day, I actually put someone up in a hostel for three weeks because um, amazingly Soho Hostel put them up for 30 pounds for three weeks, which is wow. incredible. Um, but I, like this idea of homelessness really affects me. And I think it's really embedded in me that I I won't ever have that problem, right? And it's just, it's just such an, if you ever talk to homeless people, some of the stories are wild. Like they're such normal people that had like one bad turn in their yeah. life and then couldn't pay that rent. And the speed at which things unravel from that point are crazy. And I, I hate to think that about taking the path of entrepreneurship because of this guts and glory idea of glamorizing it as, a, as an opportunity in an industry. In most cases, you don't make any money from it. It's not as fun as most creative endeavors. Um, frankly, having being your own boss is not at all it's made out to be either like i quite i always remember being in advertising and loving being given great direction by someone i admired right someone yeah. telling me what to do yeah, yeah, yeah. and allowing me to flourish in something that i definitely felt like i was really capable of doing suddenly when you take all that away and you have to make your own decisions i mean there's a reason i've had a bunch of failures it's because i'm learning slowly what the right and wrong strategies or decisions are um that's quite a painful thing to keep on learning I think a lot of it comes down to self-awareness, doesn't it? And I mean, we we often talk about having that buffer, making sure we've we've been talking recently about creating your own redundancy package because um, we've noticed that a lot of people that we've had on have made the leap um, into the thing that they really want to be doing, but only once they've been made redundant. And it's so interesting how how many people aren't making that leap because they don't happen to have the magic formula of luck just hitting at the right time and then them getting that redundancy package so we've been talking about build your own one like like have that six month buffer that you're going to need and 
and we always say about like punching your boss in the face and and throwing your laptop laptop out the window (laughs) it's like it's a great story but it's just it's just not practical you can't just leave abandon everything in day one and go right this is my new life now you have to be measured and and planned really i did i did the same thing when i when i first took the leap so i knew for six months that i was going to start grab all my last business and um i spent six to nine months not spending anything um, I moved to a smaller flat. I was living in Kentish Town. I went to move in like a really small one. Um, I mean, this was before Kentish Town was like outrageously expensive anyway. <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, I was like, right, I know I'm going to do this. So I know that I need to save my money up. Um, and, you know, when you're single at 25, 26, you don't need that much money. Um, and in my first year of Grabble, you know, me and Joel always laugh about this, but it's entirely true. First year, we didn't pay ourselves anything at all, but we had some money left over from our last business, but you know, most of that was going in the mortgage. So, and we put 25 grand into the new business to get it started, but we didn't pay that for ourselves. We took nothing in the first year. We ate, and this is so stereotypical, but it's bloody true. And what's interesting is now I know so much about nutrition. I'm like, this is actually horrific, but we ate tuna and noodles like all the time. Noodles is actually probably okay, but eating that much tuna is probably not that good. <laughs> Given like all the added mercury we most likely yeah. had, but hey, you know I still love tuna. I just don't know about eating it every day. Um, but that was a really practical thing to do, and you learn. I mean, I learned. I don't need jack. Sh- I'm I'm lucky as well. I don't like material goods so much. I'm super. I can stare at a wall and entertain myself. So it's called a TV. No, <laughs> uh, I, I, like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm lucky because, or I can read a book. Like, I'm totally happy to have very, very little, and I'll be perfectly pleased. Mm-hmm. So the the benefit of that is I was getting by on nothing. It's so easy, and now I earn more money because you know I've got a budget for my own salary in my new company. Um, that's, I still don't really spend anymore. Actually, most of it just goes on saving because I'm just hardwired into yeah. not really needing things, which is great. It's, yeah. it's clear as well that you, you're following your happiness as well because you could have just kept on with the, uh, with the deal site because that was just clicking yes. in money. You could have just carried on there, but it didn't fulfill you, didn't make you happy. And obviously the, the money is not the important part for you. It's being fulfilled. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's evidently clear with Heights, your new business. But let's um, talk a little bit about Grabble because yeah, that, sure. that was obviously hugely successful. You yeah. were at one stage out selling ASOS as as the UK yeah. and I had retailer. Yeah, and I had a really interesting meeting once. <clears throat> I always say this to people. I've never said it on a podcast because, you know, it's probably not the wisest thing, but hey. <laughs> um, so we got called into Nick Robinson's office. So he's the founder of ASOS. And I was living in Camden at the time and their offices in Camden. So I was like, yeah, no problem. Actually, super cool. Like, really happy to. And he was just like, look, just to be super duper clear, um, you know, talk to me about what you're doing. Yes, we might buy you. Yes, we might not, whatever. But broadly speaking, he was just like, um, we're ASOS. We've got so much more money than you. Yes, of course, you're doing a great job of with mobile. And he was not like... Well, I'll explain. Basically, he was extremely, I had, uh, and still do, oodles of respect for him because he basically looked me in the eye and said, you know, we're 100 times bigger. I mean, thousands of times bigger. Um, We're just getting started on mobile. Our business is web. So we're a little behind on this, but whatever. Don't think it's not incredibly easy for us to copy you. Of course it is. And we will. So you can do X, Y, and Z or fuck off. Um, But eventually, you know, we're going to copy you if you carry on like this. And I actually really respected it because he didn't, A, have to spend any of his time doing that. I didn't have to 
meet me. He didn't have to get me in a meeting. He didn't have to explain that that's what they were going to do. None of it. And even though it was kind of like intimidating and a bit like macho, whatever, he did it all with like quite a charming smile on his face. So I'm like, that's probably like the politest dickhead I've ever met in my life. Um, so I actually, I learned quite a lot from that meeting because I think that's actually a very respectful way to be about a competitor or to a competitor who's much smaller than you. But yeah, with Grabble... Um, so what was Grabble? Grabble was a shopping app, essentially. We got nicknamed the Tinder of fashion because we tried many different um, user experience opportunities and how to engage customers and we launched this Tinder user experience because Joel had basically designed a bunch of uh, designs on the back of a napkin, genuinely, just to be the stereotype, but that is what he did. <laughs> and, uh, well, if we'd have smoked, then we'd have said fag packet, but, you know, it was a napkin. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this, and we showed it around to a bunch of people. We had a few different experiences that we were showing, but the Tinder one, people were like, oh, this looks absolutely amazing. So we designed and launched it. We found this Pakistani agency that built it like a prototype for us, like 5K, because we had no money, and it went viral. So we got really lucky because we'd spent a year building this web platform that we'd invested our own money into, got other money into, and nothing happened. Like we got hundreds of users at most, so it was crap. Um, but then we uh, got really lucky because we um, it had this, I guess, insight or whatever that that experience would lend itself well to fashion we went totally viral I mean it wasn't by coincidence I learned how to go viral back then on Twitter it was quite a formulaic thing so um, I did a very tactical sort of four days straight of learning how you go viral on Twitter and it completely worked we went to the number one um, trending topic on Twitter then became the number one app on the app store and how do you go viral on I've Twitter? actually got a video it's, a bit, it's another hour long story I've got, right. I've got <laughs> okay. a video I was on a show called Silicon Reel um, at, from the guy that does London Reel it's like YouTube videos yeah, yeah, yeah. it's at the time of it, would ha it was like a month after so it was like super fresh extremely detailed um, but I mean the really long story short is you don't um, you get other people talking about your brand you don't use hashtags you don't use ads so um, and memes, which are still really popular, um, not like QR codes, they still they still work. You'd got I got like other people, so I was like again student verticals, a whole bunch of different verticals, but using the student ones. There's loads of student verticals that were things like uh, Lord of the Rings reactions or Simpsons quotes. So what you yeah. want is like massive, massive fans around really niche topics. Like as the more niche, the better. Like Liverpool, like FC, like whatever the thing is, doesn't matter if they've got like a massive fan base of geeks that like that one thing. So and then you write memes for them. So the best one that I always quote because it makes me laugh is, you know, the Lord of the Rings one. I did this meme of uh, Frodo holding the ring at Mount Mordor. And uh, it said that feeling when you finally find that ring on gravel. Um, it was like him like crying with like joy with no fingers because Gollum's bitten them off and everyone like, gets <laughs> it, right? But the point is no hashtag gravel, no at gravel, thousands of retweets and everyone going, wait, what's gravel? And so people go and search for gravel and then they can see that other people, because I've done this simultaneously across hundreds of these sites, simultaneously they can see that everyone else is tweeting this thing, Grabble. And then people start responding, going, you don't know what Grabble is. Like, Grabble's amazing. You know, like, yeah. well, you don't know what Grabble is either, mate, but yeah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah. And then pe basically people start searching Google for Grabble. And so you've made sure that you've got a like paid search term at the top where people can find it. And they went and downloaded it. And it was all so organic because you were not using hashtags or ads. So it didn't yeah. look like an ad campaign. And overnight, essentially, it just starts, the word Grabble starts printing up through Twitter. And at the end, like Grabble's the number one search term. So then people start clicking on Grabble yeah. and seeing that there's thousands of people tweeting all about it. So it feels like an overnight sensation, which it kind of is. So it's a hugely tactical thing. Um, and the reality is, 
we went viral. We stayed um, extremely popular. We capitalized on that. We were running out of money desperately. We had like two weeks left in money. We managed to raise like a million pound in about two weeks. Did some ridiculous things like... We're having these investment meetings where everyone was obviously like, fuck off, you've done nothing, you know, launch, see how it goes and then whatever. So at the point where you're like, launch, go viral, get to number one on Twitter, all this stuff, you're like, right, you in or out? Because yeah, like, yeah. we've got a week of money and people are in and in and in. Met someone who was like, I'm desperate to put the money in. Um, we're like, we're actually, the round's full, which was completely true. And he's like, if I give you a billboard in Piccadilly Circus just before Christmas Day, like Christmas Eve, like, will you take my money and not, not someone else's? And we're like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, whilst all of this is going on, we're like, right, now we've got like a, a billboard in a week and Christmas Day, like, what are we going to do? Like, do? And so we did some horrifically tacky campaign with like a Christmas campaign. And it was really like, it was lame and tacky and like totally like, you know, childish, but kind of okay for that age group that we were targeting with yeah. Grabble at the beginning. Um, and had this billboard on and Piccadilly Circus, like this giant one, it was ridiculous. And then did a little campaign underneath it and then it got picked up by the Daily Mail and then New Year's Day, the Daily Mail put us in their paper and on the Mail Online, which was incredible. And so that was like an amazing way to start a new year when you think you're going to have to shut the company down. Yeah. And so stuff like this, just we became very good at PR and we became very good at like coming up with creative ways and creative angles to do things. Then we made the product more sophisticated and took it to like a higher end place. And in the end, we were doing... Um, 30,000 new users every single day um, for months and months and months. We were we had over a million monthly active users. We were doing in revenue 1.2 million pounds every single month through the app in shopping. The problem was the, the, the business model was fucked. And we always knew that. And this is the interesting thing. I actually spoke on a panel the other day about this, which is um, we were led by our investors to not worry about it because that's very common. Right? And that's totally fair. It's a very reasonable point of view, which is guys just worry about the numbers. Like if you are the number one shopping app, you can raise money and you can sort these things out. It's not a problem. We'll fix them later. Yeah. Um, that's all true in a boom market. So whilst things are growing really fast, that's fine. But like for us, what happened was um, Brexit happened in the middle of the funding round. And not that I like, you know, would blame Brexit because I actually blame ourselves for, the, for not choosing a better path. Um, so it's a good le le like lesson. Yeah, You don't really... Everyone always says, like, whenever I, I did a marketing master's and one of the main things you learn is, like, environmental and governmental factors is always a really key thing you plan for in marketing plans, right? You plan for customer, you plan for internal stakeholders. That's always one of the main ones and never even occurred to us at Gravel to even consider it, right? We had quite a lot of, like, regulatory things to work out with retailers, so this just wasn't on our radar. And, and as you'll remember, no one even thought it was going to happen. So... Um, the reality is having a product that's growing really fast but costs a lot of money to service the customers, um, which was what happened with us. We had, you know, about 25 people in customer service, like consistently trying to get products to customers because UPS had lost something or DPD had lost something. Personally, I don't think I've ever, ever, ever ordered something online and I'm a relatively decent online shopper. I don't think I've ever ordered something online and, and complained it hasn't turned up. Generally, things turn up. Yeah. When you own something like Gravel, you'd be amazed. About 10% of everything <laughs> apparently just doesn't turn up. And you're like, there's a lot of people just claiming shit and you can't say anything about it. Yeah. So anyway, we were on the hook for all of those. So anything again, that doesn't you're, turn the, you're the shop front. Yeah. yeah, we're the shop front, but this time we'd gone really hard on customer service, right? So everything was fully automated in-app. It was a beautiful experience. We got featured by Apple in Cupertino at their big like WWDC yeah. thing as like the best checkout experience in any app in Europe. Amazing. Like We really, really, really went super hard on the customer experience. But behind that, 
it's smoke and mirrors, right? It's like we are concierging a service for you. We're buying it from a retailer. We're sending it to you and making sure you get that product. And if there are returns, come through us. Make it all simple. That's and fine. losing your fucking minds. Exactly. <laughs> so this stuff is this stuff. We we hired this amazing German guy as our COO because always hire a German if there's loads of process. Um, he was unbelievable at sorting this stuff out. But realistically, there's only so much you can sort out from all the different delivery partners. Yeah. Miss it like, and you can't call a customer a liar or say they haven't got something. So every single thing that goes on record as they've lost it, you're on the hook for. So it was a really bleeding business model, which meant that during Brexit, when you were raising a good round, um, people were just like, no, I don't have the confidence in this business because the numbers are really dodgy, right? As in you're making like loads of revenue and you're spending it every month. You know, it's not, it's a very normal startup story. There's nothing wrong with that, but that story works way better when things are okay in the market and there's plenty (laughs) of cash. When there's not, it's totally understandable as an investor. You want to put your money into something where you don't feel like your money is the survival lifeblood of the organization. So that was very much our problem. And the lesson on reflection has totally been about owning, you know, ultimately as the founder, it's your responsibility to make the call. Um, you can have investors and you can trust your investors and you can respect your investors and you can think they know more than I do. But the difference is an investor's job, and I've become very sympathetic and understanding of the variety of, 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 I guess, the right way to put it is motivation, right? Entrepreneurs' motivation is to create mm-hmm. ultimately and like, you know, and obviously in some cases to make money like a profitable business, deliver a return to shareholders, have happy customers, all the things. An investor's motivation is to try and have a home run. That's how the stuff works. Generally speaking, especially venture capital funds, 10 punts, one home run, that the numbers work like that. Yeah. So they are time poor. They've got 10 investments at least. There's only so much time they can spend on these things. So if you're hot, they'll spend more time with you to optimize your growth, which is what they were doing with us. But if there seems like there's a weakness or a chink in the chain or anything like that, you know, they don't have the time to do that. They have to optimize for their fund because that's literally their job they're employed to do. Mm-hmm. So... You know, there was a period, obviously, where I would be really indignant and angry about the behavior or the things we'd listen to. But it's also my responsibility to understand, as it is for any entrepreneur, to understand what is the deal you're doing? Is the deal you're doing with your investor clear to you how they operate and clear to you how they'll behave? No one puts a gun to your head. Sometimes there's legal clauses. There weren't with us. So no one puts a gun to your head and tells you what to do. They just make the suggestions that they think are best for the company. Mm based on their version of what's best for the company. And you as an entrepreneur need to be super sure that you understand you're doing what's best for the company too. So, you know, this time around, when people suggest things to us, you know, we listen, we can take into consideration with experience that it isn't always what's necessarily going to be best or create the best outcome long term. Um, We're adults, right? You have to make good decisions. There's a load of examples of brilliant entrepreneurs that have been to the brink and back with their businesses because they made the right call. And often with strategy and success and failure, it's a roll of the dice moment. You know, is it like red or black? You know, which one am I choosing? Because both look good right now. When you pick the wrong one, it doesn't work. You pick the right one, you're a genius. And sometimes it's just a guess. (laughs) Sometimes it's more than a guess, obviously. But not in my case. (laughs) That sounds terrifying. And... Uh, but obviously a massive learning process. And so let's talk about your, your new venture. Um, and I think it's really interesting what you've, what you've done with Heights. So you've, you've launched already in theory because you're, sort of. you're creating demand for the product before the product actually exists, which I think is really smart. And, 
you're just doing that by showering people with as much value as possible. Yeah, exactly. And that's generally my philosophy in life. I really like um, the idea of, you know, it's a bit like duck, duck, goose. I have a version of it, which is just give, 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 take. Which, you know, at the point where you're on the take part, everyone just feels like, yeah, no no problem. Like that seems perfectly reasonable. So the idea with with heights is... I had an experience a year and a half ago that was um, horrifying, frankly. And, you know, it's, uh, I, mean, I don't know when this is coming out specifically, but it's Mental Health Awareness Day this week. And I didn't really appreciate that I had a proper mental health issue. So I'd always had really horrific anxiety Um that's quite common if you're an entrepreneur. It's quite common in a lot of industries, you know. I don't want to glamorise entrepreneurship. I mean, I can't even fucking imagine being a doctor, right? So let's yeah. be... Or being <laughs> in the army. Yeah. So let's be real. Um, but, you know, it's a stressful job because you feel like people are relying on you and you're relying on you. Um, and you're relying on waking up every day as the best version of yourself and making good decisions, which is not, like, actually that realistic. Mm-hmm. So anxiety was a very common feature. But I actually um, got insomnia really, really, really horrifically. And... What was interesting is I was in quite a happy place at the time. So I, um, you know, I was getting married in the summer. I had good relationships with everyone around me. Um, At the time, the business was actually doing well. Um, We had money in the bank, you know, all the different things. And I I couldn't sleep. It was really, really weird. I'd go to bed at midnight and I'd wake up at 2 a.m. wide away every single night and it went on for five months. So for the first three months, I was like, oh, okay, I'm uh, clearly a genius because Elon Musk sleeps two hours a night. So <laughs> I'll just be productive, right? I'd get up at 2 a.m. I'd work till 10 a.m. That's when we started our, you know, our day. And so I was like, brilliant. I'm doing like two days a week, two days a day, every yeah, single yeah. weekday. It's amazing. Of course, the reality of that is it's nonsense. And when I was in work, I was completely like running on fumes and I was uninspiring and, you know, the worst version of myself. Um, but anyway, that went on for five months and I tried like everything, you know, and, and this is the thing I learned. I learned a lot about, um, which I think is just such a fascinating thing, obviously why I started a new business, but I learned that I tried to, tr- I tried to solve everything with my mind. So to me, insomnia is a state of mind. Um, so is anxiety, everything's to do with the mind. So I tried mindfulness. I tried um, medita- meditation regularly. I tried, you know, working out more. I tried changing my diet. So like all these different things. And I was vegan at the time, um, which was actually making me feel really good physically. Um, but I'd actually learned that it caused some of this, these issues. So I, I tried so many different things and someone bought me a book called Optimum Nutrition for the Mind, which is one of many brain books on food that you can get. But I sort of like struck me. I was like, A, skeptical. Like, I'm not reading this shit. Like, I, what? This makes no sense to me. But should I just read it? Because, you know, you've tried everything else. So, okay, fair enough. Um, and the thing that really struck me about it was the simplicity of explaining that your brain is an organ. And like any organ, it needs certain nutrients to survive. And the way that we treat our brain and our relationship with our brain is that it's an object. It's an object like the mind. So how do I treat the mind? The mind is my symptom. The mind is my ego. The mind is my sense of being and well-being. And everything that I do results results in my mind. However, um, if you don't look after the organ that your mind sits in, it's all kind of for nothing. Um, it wasn't you know, the, I've, I've developed that analogy a, a little further, but it was a very simple statement at the beginning, which is, you know, your brain is essentially an organ. You need to give it the right food. These are the right foods. Yeah. So, you know, two of the really obvious ones are fish because of the DHA, the oil, the omega-3s, um, you know, and eggs and there's B vitamins and there's a whole bunch of things. But, uh, you know, doing a completely plant-based lifestyle, I wasn't getting 
any fish oil and I wasn't getting any um, B vitamins really. I wasn't getting any B12 for sure. So I learned, it was very simple things, but I started supplementing them and I actually, you know, became pescatarian, which I am now. So I still don't eat meat, but you know, that's like my personal choice. Um, and I think it's really interesting as someone who, I spent nine months as vegan and was very principled about it. You know, I was, you know, it wasn't the completely typical one that everyone hears about. You know, if people invited me around for dinner, I would just politely decline or something so they didn't have to tell them I was vegan. So I didn't have to be mocked for it. But, you know, regardless, you um, you make a choice and don't really think about how it might actually affect your physical health. Um, what's really good about, like, if you are vegan or you are vegetarian, um, supplementation, as I've learned, is not a choice. Is totally not, you know, like if, if you want to look after your brain, it's actually like a complete essential. It's fascinating. So I that information hadn't permeated my sphere at the time. And I was really interested because I was like, this is weird. I work in Shoreditch. I run a startup. I know about keto. I know about vegan. I know about intermittent fasting, all these trendy things. What about just eating a healthy brain diet? Never heard about that. Why does no one talk about that? Mm. So it became like this pure like fascination point for me. And I started to learn about nootropics and all these things that like, you know, biohackers and people in the 1% of the 1% in Silicon Valley were doing. And I was like, that stuff's interesting too, because you know what? There's a shitload of scientific fact in science journals that, you know, I'd become geeky at this point on this stuff that people just aren't bothering reading because they're in science journals. They're not very interesting. So I was like, I'm going to just write a newsletter on brain health as my new thing and see where that takes me. So it wasn't like at the start completely with a purpose. Yeah. It was like, I'm reading the science journals. I'm good at communicating. That's what I used to do at Grabble. I used to write a lot of the content and get it out there to people. So I'll just take like that aspect and turn it into this aspect. So I started writing um, essentially a three minute Sunday newsletter that was neuroscience, psychology and nutrition for the brain all the original source material of where you can read the scientific studies yeah. on them, um, but just turn into English. So like I say, don't waste time with science. Let us do that for you. <laughs> um, so I know most people aren't that interested in science, but at the same time, these are scientifically proven things you can do for your state of mind and well-being. Um, and so that was 45 weeks ago now. So this week's week 45 of the newsletter, so almost a year. And in the background, we've been developing um, essentially a brain health membership. So the idea is we researched all these different areas, nootropics, vitamins, etc. And what we discovered was, interestingly, the multivitamin is A, the most boring category of vitamin you can possibly imagine, and B, the most popular in the world. So 60% of women in the UK, so they took one like in the lot, well, our regular use of yeah. every month, 50% of men, they are basically your insurance policy. And what mostly goes into them is stuff that you can get in your daily diet in general, which is super interesting because if you are not a vegetarian or vegan, most of the things you get in a multivitamin you're going to come into contact with in whatever you eat generally. Um, however, the stuff for a brain, you're not. So the top three things for your brain, generally speaking, are an array of B vitamins, like we said, definitely B12, because it helps you absorb other vitamins. So it's incredibly important if you're depleted in it, you fuck up your whole body and your whole nutrition. So yeah. it's like essential. It's why vegans always get, you know, people chase them down the road to say, make sure you're getting your B12. <laughs> um, you don't hear about it otherwise, really. Um, so B vitamins, blueberry extracts. So blueberries are unbelievably good for your brain. You should eat about 25 of them every day. But who does that? I mean, I know this stuff and I still don't manage to eat 25 a day. And then DHA omega-3. And why that's so important is because DHA omega-3, your, your brain is made one third out of DHA. So it's like building 
blocks, right? It's like bricks. If you were to remove bricks of DHA from your brain because you're not replenishing it all the time, you can stack it up with a different material. You can stack it up with, for example, there's different types of omega-3. There's EPA and ALA. You could put that in instead, which you can get from vegetables, but not from fish oil and not from algae oil, which is where we source ours from. But you're replacing the foundations of the house with something, you know, not quite as sturdy as bricks. So, There's lots of interesting analogies we can do to use it, but essentially your brain is an organ that biologically and physiologically follows very simple rules, which is that it's made around 60% fat, 70% of it's water. The way that neurons fire across your brain is through electrical impulses that happen over basically a moist brain. So if you are dehydrated, you're not going to be thinking, well, you're going to be sleeping bad, etc. If you are not getting the right nutrition in your brain, it's really, really common that you will have a mental disease, as in it's very, very, in, in a whole variety of them. There's so many different types, right? There's my manifestation of it, it turns out, was insomnia. And you know, and anxiety is very commonly another one. You might get depression that typically, you know, would come more likely from things like lack of social connection with others. However, there's all the different mental diseases have different ways that have been thought about solving, um, solving for and helping people through in society. And the thing that struck me as completely fucking bonkers is nutrition, never on the radar. We don't think about it, right? So the things you think about, if you hear anyone that has depression, anxiety, insomnia, any of these things, go see someone, talk to someone, go out in nature. These are all correct cures. They are absolutely the things you need to do. But why no one as nutrition or looking at what you put into your body when once you've said it, your brain is an organ. It's the most important organ in your body. It literally controls how you feel, think, move, all your possibilities, everything. Um, We don't prioritize it. We literally, the way we live in society is we prioritise our bodies and our aesthetics. So we will choose diets based on how we look, how big we want to be, how thin we want to be, how fast we want to run, all these things, not how fast we want to think or how much we want to sleep. And it's completely absurd. The whole thing's the wrong way around. And what's really exciting to me about this stuff is it's a really well-researched, scientifically proven area that gets no airtime. So it's an amazing opportunity to be in a place where we can create a product. So that's the idea for us. We've created, we've basically reinvented the multivitamin to be brain first. So if you already take a multivitamin, you can take this instead. You still get your vitamin, daily dose of vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin A, but you get DHA omega-3 in its purest form. You get uh, the equivalent of 25 blueberries in every daily dose, all your B vitamins. So you basically get everything you need for your brain and your body in one go. Um, our message is super clear, which is do not take our product. The best thing you can do with your brain is not having heights and it's not having any other supplements either. It's eating a better diet. That's why we put a recipe into every single newsletter every week. It's just people are fucking busy. I'm busy and I don't get to cook that much. And I'm a crap cook too. So, (laughs) you know, my wife's a good cook, but again, like, you know, it takes time. Mm. So the reality is like where vitamins can be really powerful is an insurance policy. The best thing to do is have a better diet. The worst thing to do is pretend like if you can't have the best thing, have nothing. And this is the thing I think is really dangerous um, from a lot of medical professionals who I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a neuroscientist, right? So I can say things without being sued um, in that sense. And the reality is there's a lot of fear if they say, you know, don't take supplements or do this or do that. They basically are responsible for saying, have things in your whole foods. And they don't really recommend supplements often. The NHS does recommend supplements, but as in people feel very com- very scared to do it because they're like, if I say that, it loses the message of get it in your whole food. Yeah. And it's like, that's incorrect. Like people are busy. 
Like people don't have time. Like I get it in the countryside and you have a lovely family and a really chill life and you want to pick vegetables off the farm and make amazing food for your kids. That is literally the utopia of lifestyle. Um, but when I'm here till nine at, nine exactly. at night and then I go home and Deliveroo is my only option. Totally. Like, and dude, like the other thing is like, you know, Huel, I've had like, you know, a bunch of people like, oh, Huel, like, you know, who who has that with a bunch of crap? I'm like, do you know how much healthier it is to have a Huel when I'm busy than not eating? Yeah. Like super simple for me. Like, you know, is it better than eating food? No. Is it better than not eating? Of course it's better than not eating. So don't tell me that Huel's not good for me. You don't have my lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice, right? So when you're a busy urban professional and you're relying on your brain because you're a knowledge worker, which we all definitely identify with, making sure your brain's getting the optimum nutrients it needs is just common sense. So I'm really excited about launching the company because to me, I went on the personal journey. I flabbergasted that there's even space in society that this is a debate. You know, it's just like, it seems like a really weird insight. You know, it's just not hard to figure out. And once you say it to someone... They're like, that's right. I don't, I don't actually ever eat for my brain. I never think, what am I putting into my body for my brain? Um, so before we go, a couple of really good news things for people. Um, coffee, very good for the brain. Don't have it after two, ideally, because sleep is also really important. But the polyphenols that come in coffee, especially dark roast coffee, amazing for the brain, really interesting uh, research later in life for neurological diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, that it's really great. Um, it's really amazing research coming out about... Um, dementia and Alzheimer's and staving them off by the combination of B vitamins and omega-3s. And the reason why, the theory, the reason why that's amazing is because one of the main theories around why people get dementia and Alzheimer's is because the shrinkage of the brain from your 70s. And what B vitamins and omega-3s do together, that doesn't happen if you take them on their own, but in conjunction, which obviously you can get in food, um, is it stops the shrinkage of the brain. And so they've got this amazing research, like with thousands of patients at Oxford University, um, where basically people who've got early stage signs of dementia and Alzheimer's, it's even started reversing them, which is incredible. Um, That's early research. There's loads of stuff coming out now around Alzheimer's and dementia, which obviously most people are rightly terrified about, really from the age of 50, but the earliest recorded case was someone who was 32. So there's no right or wrong time to start looking after your brain's health. Um, This research is all coming out around nutrition and lifestyle. And it's really interesting because we all sort of believe that, you know, those things are just genetic. They're just going to happen or they're not going to happen. It's not true. It turns out that around 1% of cases of Alzheimer's and dementia are genetic. The rest are all related to lifestyle factors, which is not what I knew. I thought it was the other way around, 1% Mm, and 99%. Not at all. Yeah. So the new research coming out on that stuff is fascinating. I feel really privileged because my job is to read this stuff, the latest science all the time. Science is interesting because it changes all the time. Someone new will come in and be like that. Scientist is a dickhead and he's wrong. Here's my new science. So that's the problem with it. Everything's very factual until it's not factual, but it's a fascinating way to get to spend my time. And I'm obviously like so fascinated by it because I cured my own issue. And, um, and now my priority is not getting mental health issues by just making sure that I have good best practice wellness prevention attitude to life. Um, can help a bunch of people along the way. Yeah, that would be the ideal, which would then give me the purpose and the, and, and the enjoyment of putting my creative uh, talents to good use. It's amazing, man. So um, where can people sign up for the Heights newsletter and where can they find you online? Yeah. So you can find us at www.yourheights.com. Um, or Your Heights on Instagram. And uh, I'm Dan Murray-Serta on everything, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. It's a good thing about getting married and getting an extra name on the end <laughs> is you can just have one name to rule them all. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks Thank so you, much, dude. Dude, thank you very Cheers. much. It's been a pleasure, both of you. 
Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya.